0: Hello, welcome to NefJC Drive Time. My name is Joel Toff. Most people know me as Kidney Boy. We're going to be doing a podcast for nefJC to allow people to catch up or experience the uh, core learning points from each week's NefJC article. This is our first podcast, so it might be a little rough. I'm going to, to go around the horn and let uh, the other
1: members of our team introduce themselves. Let's start with Swapnil. So I'm Swapnil Harmat. Uh, I tweet as H Swapnil, and I usually go by Swap. I'm a nephrologist from Ottawa.
2: I'm Samira Farouk. I tweet at SS Farouk. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York. I'm Jenny Lin. I'm at
3: J-E-N-N-I-E, J-Lin. Uh, I am a physician scientist at Northwestern University.
4: Hey, this is Matt Sparks. I tweet at nephro underscore Sparks. I'm a physician scientist at Duke University. Okay,
0: great. So tonight's uh, NefJC drive time is on the association of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug prescriptions with kidney disease among active, young, and middle-aged adults. This was in the new journal JAMA Network Open. It was published in February of 2019, and it's looking at NSAID use and the development of both acute kidney injury and chronic kidney disease. We're going to start off with a little background on this, and Swapnil is going to lead this part of the discussion.
1: So the timing of this article is really interesting because uh, perhaps NSAIDs are making a comeback with the opioid crisis that is going on. Secondly, it's also because left madness is going on right now, and we have a pain region for those who have not tuned in yet, and the competitors do include NSAIDs. Now we all know as nephrologists that NSAIDs are bad. We tell our patients not to take NSAIDs. Um, the mechanism is varied. Uh, they inhibit prostaglandins, uh, which has effect on renal hemodynamics. Uh, but it's the chronic toxicity, which is uh, of a bigger, which has always been of a bigger concern, uh, and it's been there since the 1950s when analgesic nephropathy was first described. So the classic analgesic nephropathy is chronic interstitial nephritis and papillary necrosis, and at its height or at its peak in the 60s and 70s, about one in five or one in six patients who started dialysis um, in Australia were diagnosed to have analgesic nephropathy as a cause. We don't see it that much any longer you know it's died off uh, probably because of a combination of things including that uh, finacetine, which was the biggest offending agent uh, has been taken off the market so Swapnil, I, I don't think i've i don't think i've ever seen this diagnosis like am i not looking
0: carefully or is it really just a finacetine uh, story uh,
1: probably a finacetine story but also a cumulative toxicity because it seems at that time uh, the combination had aspirin, phenacetine, and either codeine or uh, barbiturate of all things. So these were drugs that were addictive because of those added, you know, codeine and barbiturates, and people were popping them. So they would be taking three, four, five a day for months and years. So they were taking kilograms of these drugs over a few years. And so it's
0: just, you think it's just an exposure issue and that that disease is not just under-recognized, it really has disappeared
1: the classic analgesic nephropathy, I suspect, has decreased significantly. I, I won't call it disappeared because someone who does take that amount of NSAIDs may still uh, be seeing something, as we can discuss later today.
4: Yeah, the most the classic description was the papillary necrosis, and I've never seen that. So I think the probably the worst case scenarios, maybe some of the drugs that were first um, given, um, like finacetin, really inhibited the uh, prostaglandins more, or, or stop production of prostaglandins more than others.
2: Now, I don't have any experience with that, but what I was taught was it was essentially not possible without combination of multiple medications and that NSAIDs alone virtually could never lead to that.
1: Though, of course, it, it, it may be different from other parts of the world, Um in some other places where NSAID use may be more rampant it may indeed be the occasional cases that may be happening that's why I was reluctant to say it disappeared but definitely it's much uh, un- much less common than it used to be. It, to me, that that's always fascinating when you have diseases that were so prevalent that had such a high
0: percentage of the end-stage renal disease population to just kind of, ev- you know, again, maybe not disappear, but essentially, you know, we've got uh, five nephrologists, six nephro- five nephrologists, I can count. It's five nephrologists here, and none of us have a case.
1: Yeah, I mean, but on the other hand, we have seen the, I'm sure you have seen the interstitial nephritis sometimes uh, that is blamed on NSAIDs. Um, And secondly, we may have seen um, uh, AKI, um, which is, you know, usually whenever I've seen, it's been in the combination. Someone gets volume contracted, perhaps they are on an ACE inhibitor and an NSAID, and it's always hard to tease out what was the contribution of NSAIDs. But I have seen um, AKI that in which NSAIDs may have something, a role to play. Yeah, I I feel that NSAID-induced AKI
0: is a regular occurrence, a common uh, common diagnosis, especially a post-operative toradol is, you know, you've got a a patient that's kind of a a third space, maybe a little bit volume depleted, they were MPO before the operation, go to the OR, come back, get a dose of toradol, and develop AKI.
4: I think the AKIs are definitely, you see them, and they're usually in combination of other events like hypo, hypotension or other medications.
2: I've seen a couple of cases of NSAID induced uh, acute interstitial nephritis on top of minimal change picture.
0: Yep. Definitely seen that. Yep. I want to be very clear we're not talking about a benign drug. This is definitely a drug with a lot of activity, renal activity, and definitely causes a lot of badness.
2: Pre renal AKI from a GI bleed,
0: hypodatremia. Hypertension. Yeah, and, and edema and hyperkalemia and exacerbations of heart failure. I mean, we see all of these symptoms from the NSAIDs. That's true. So uh, this study was questioning you know, two things. One, the AKI, which I don't have any doubt that it causes. And secondly, with the, the chronic kidney disease, which is I, I've always been skeptical about, Um, or let me rephrase it. I've not always been skeptical, but when I went looking for the evidence that NSAIDs caused chronic kidney disease, I was surprised at the lack of it.
1: Right. So there have been many studies in the recent, um, in the 90s and 2000s, I would say. The two big ones, are there's a report from the Physician's Health Study, and there's another from Gray Karhan and the Nurses Health Study. So these are large cohorts. And they looked at NSAID exposure and they found zero effect on declining GFR in ESRD uh, or worsening of CKD. Now, of course, you could you could argue that you know this is uh, there's going to be recall bias. There's going to be you know the exposure of NSAIDs was did you take an NSAIDs and how often did you take NSAIDs. Uh, Plus, they are over-the-counter. So there are all those other factors. And the doses are, you know, these are otherwise healthy physicians and nurses. So I don't suspect these patients were, these uh, individuals were taking a lot of NSAIDs. So the doses was the occasional NSAID exposure, not a heavy NSAID exposure. The crazy thing
0: in the nurse's health study was that the drug that was toxic was acetaminophen. Right and you know and I, I read that my eyes popped because this is what I'm telling my patients to take all the time and this was the drug that had twice the likelihood of developing uh, decreased GFR which I think was the endpoint in that study
1: mm-hmm. and and in fact acetaminophen and phenacetin are very closely related um, um, so so it would be nice to have controlled studies and and there are a couple of nice controlled studies um, the one that happened earlier. Is a report from 2013 uh, by Moller. It's a it's a Swiss uh, group that it was a registry, but the people included in the registry were patients with rheumatoid arthritis, and they had to have um, they had to say how many over the counter NSAIDs they also took apart from prescription NSAIDs, and they these are again patients with rheumatoid arthritis, so they got a lot of NSAIDs, and among those who were using NSAIDs versus those who were not using NSAIDs, all with rheumatoid arthritis, right? So there's no Selection bias there. There was no difference in GFR decline. You know, it was like 0.7 uh, mLs per minute per year versus 0.8 mL per minute per year with a p of 0.63. Uh, about 5,000 odd patients. So that's that's pretty good. Uh, and the second is of course something we have discussed on the FJC, the Precision Trial, uh, led by Steve Nissen, which looked at ibuprofen, naproxen, and uh, celecoxib. Of course, this had no non NSAID group. Uh, but again, uh, this was a randomized control trial and that showed absolutely very, very low rates of uh, worsening uh, GFR and CKD. Can in I these ask a groups. question
4: about that uh, real quick? That I went through that precision trial recently and noticed that there's no uh, placebo group. So how do you reconcile that if they're all getting blockade of prostaglandin? You might be able to tell a difference between the two, but how do you know what its effect over nil is?
0: Right. So that's not addressed in the precision trial. I think what's surprising in the precision trial is the dose of the exposure that these patients got, right? The, average, the starting dose of ibuprofen was 600 TID and they stepped them up to 800 TID. They continued those doses for 20 months and cumulatively there was 1% of uh, rate of kidney events. And, you know, you kind of, you know, if you told me, you know, you took um, uh, elderly white females, which was the predominant group in that study and you gave them that type of exposure i would i would think they'd be dropping like flies with aki i think an
2: interesting i think an interesting control group may have been acetaminophen since i think most of us wouldn't just give nothing for pain i think we would opt for something like that and i think if that is the population we may have seen increased metabolic acidosis or some other adverse effect
4: also 1% in individuals that have creatinine of 0.9 that, and a lot of people are taking NSAIDs, and probably at this dose, is, is is not trivial.
3: Now, was there any sensitivity analysis for the role of hypertension? Just because I would think from the pathophysiology or proposed mechanisms that people who might have some vascular stiffening or some uh, vascular dysfunction might be more sensitive.
1: Good question. I don't think I've seen a sensitivity analysis by hypertension. So
0: that, that was a part of the study that we we're about to talk about. Okay, so that kind of that kind of is uh, flushes out the background. What we have is uh, the definite belief that NSAIDs are really associated with chronic kidney disease. It's hard to find where that data comes from, but it is a common part of the guidelines that we uh, read and adopt and tell our patients: is anybody with CKD should be avoiding these NSAIDs. You know. Um, Though it seems that it's a little it's a little soft where that data comes from, you know. Clearly, there was a, a big signal in the 70s uh, with this fenacetin, and that some of the large studies that were done in the 90s and, and early aughts uh, don't really uh, hold. They don't really hold that up. Uh, and in that kind of milieu, we have uh, this study right here. Um,
3: uh, diving in, uh, this was a retrospective cohort study. And the main exposure was NSAID use, uh, defined as, or I guess measured as defined daily doses.
0: So, what is a, what is a defined
3: daily dose? So, a defined daily dose, um, so say if, if you had more than seven, a uh, defined daily dose of greater than seven, that would be more than seven doses per month for six months.
0: And is it a certain number of milligrams? Or is now, it just a, Is it seven pills in a month is one to seven?
1: That's right. It's, it's, you took some NSAID for that day. So it could be as low as 200 milligrams of ibuprofen or 800 milligram TID. So that's 2,400. And both of
0: those would that's be 1DD. d d But in this study, it was whatever their prescribed dose, how many they, it doesn't matter how many they took during that day, if they took it that one day, boom, they've got it. That's my understanding. And so we're talking the the groups are none, none, 1 to 7 doses a month and greater right. than 7 right. doses greater a month. Greater than 7. Correct. Okay. Greater
2: than 7. I think I think this design might overestimate the exposure in some of these participants. I think we often write prescriptions to take medications every 6 to 8 hours as needed, and I'm not sure how many of those patients are actually taking it around the clock every 8 hours.
0: Right. And what they're tracking here is what's the what's written, not what's ingested, right? They're just looking at what was the prescribed dose.
3: Yeah. What was dispensed, my understanding is what's dispensed by the military health system. So meaning like if someone went to Walgreens or their drugstore and got extra um, on their own accord, that would not be recorded here.
4: I wanted to mention, from a reliable source, I heard that in this population, it's actually fairly uncommon to get medications outside of prescription on the base. Oh, just because of a cost. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Yeah, so that brings us to the study population, which was active-duty U.S. Army members, so primarily men, although I guess we'll go into that more in the results. Uh, the data were collected over a three-year period— the outcomes that were actually looked at were AKI and CKD defined on the basis of ICD-9. And uh, Swapnil, you might be able to help us out here, but the analysis was Cox proportional hazards, which I actually have a difficult time explaining to students and trainees. Do you have a great way to explain that for those of us who uh, don't are not in clinical
0: research. What you don't hear is everybody's sign in relief <laughs> that they weren't called on to define cox
1: <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, I <Go> want <laughs> you to that for us. <laughs> so um, uh, I hope no statistician hears me talk about this. Uh, but I would think about it as, uh, so you're talking, you're using a survival analysis here, right? Uh, it's not uh, odds ratio. It's not how many people died, how many survived uh, at the end of the study. It's more of when did the events occur? Some of the events occurred earlier, some of them occurred later. And and you throw in a regression on top of that. Uh, so it's basically a form of adjusted analysis um, where the events are occurring over a period of time. Uh, but, but let me go back to the outcomes. Uh, so they used ICD-9 outcomes, which is, you know, we all have issues with those outcomes, but I, as someone pointed out, they are very specific. They may not be sensitive, and that's what we care about, right? They are they're specific here. But did you see when these were captured? Is it that these people go and get their creatinins measured, or is it that they get sick and they go to the military hospital and that's when the diagnosis is made? So we're probably going to miss some, is what you're saying. Yeah, and could it be that people who are taking NSAIDs have? numbers check well, more it's often.
0: people that are getting prescriptions that are going to get they are encountered right. the medical system right people that would get not get prescribed any drugs they'll be in the, right. the class zero and they would also and they're not they're not they, they they can't get a written diagnosis am i misinterpreting how this works right the only the people that are getting prescriptions are going to be uh, have a possibility of getting that written that uh, diagnosis written down
1: Right, unless someone really becomes sick who's not on NSAIDs, then yes, they would get the AKI or CKD diagnosis. But is it possible that some AKI or CKD may have been missed in non-NSAID users because there's less suspicion? Of well, sure, I here?
3: would I would say so. Especially since these are active duty uh, military members, um, mm-hmm. they would certainly be at risk for multiple acute events that would trigger acute kidney injury. I would assume rhabdomyolysis would be one of the big ones for this group. Well,
4: hypovolemia.
3: So there would definitely be bias in terms of um, the people who are captured using this study design. On the other hand, one thing I don't know is how often active duty military people are, actually have to go in and get regular physicals. Like, Are they doing uh, it once a year?
0: The, the, the article said they had to go yearly.
3: Yearly. Okay. So, yeah, so we would not be capturing it super off, very often.
0: NSAID use is no,
4: notoriously high in this group because of the physical activity that they're engaged in
0: to try to, you know, reduce pain and inflammation. Well, you know, uh, uh, not to slip ahead to the results, but, you know, two-thirds of the patient got no NSAID prescriptions. They were at the, the zero group. Okay. Do we have anything else we want to talk about with the methods? Okay. Who's going to talk about the results?
2: Jump into the results here and try to pull out some of the salient points. Um, so, during the time period of the study, 2011 to 2014, around 800,000 active army soldiers were. Uh, eligible to be included. And of those, they found that 760,000 or so uh, met the criteria for at least one of the two endpoint specific analyses, one being AKI and the other being uh, the development of CKD. Um, So I'm just going to go through figure by figure here and summarize the main points. And so unlike table one in most papers, which tells us the study population demographics, table one here actually tells us about the NSAID demographic population. And I think, not surprisingly, 50% or the highest percentage were prescribed ibuprofen. And then number two behind ibuprofen was naproxen. 23% of participants who received an NSAID were dispensed that. And, Jewel, as you mentioned, only about a third of of these participants received any NSAID at all. Um, So of the 800,000 prescriptions for ibuprofen, almost uh, 80% were for 800 milligram tablets, and 90% allowed for three or more daily doses of up to 2,400 milligrams per day. Of the close to 380,000 naproxen prescriptions, 96% were 500 milligrams or higher, and 94% of these allowed for at least twice daily use or up to a gram per day.
1: That's a lot of ibuprofen. Um, so, so this would be like 100 grams in six months? Uh, this would
2: be, yeah, hundred hundred thousand eight hundred milligrams over six months. Wow.
1: And, and it could be that they didn't take it just for a week. Maybe they were taking it daily. Yeah, I mean, month. I think
2: that issue to think about is that, you know, they're prescribed 800 milligrams up to three times a day. So whether they're taking three or four or zero, we're not really sure with this study design.
0: It's But it is a lot of NSAID exposure. Like this 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 study captures a tremendous amount of consumption. How does it compare to the precision trial? Precision trial is 24,000 participants with 20 months of exposure and it's 800 600 800 TID. Yeah, similar similar doses, similar doses. But
4: they were probably taking it. We know they're probably taking it. That was part of the study. They measured they measured consumption.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, in precision, though, about 60% And they died of GI bleeds. Off. Oh, my. <laughs> no, they didn't die of GI yeah, bleeds.
4: That was, a,
1: that was just Are a just.
4: <laughs> it's interesting. If you look at the, the types of NSAIDs that were dispensed, you could probably sort of think, like, why would someone get endomethacin? You know, like, is some physician just like to use it? Or is it, does the, the person have gout? Or, um, you know, sort of. Might, might be able to kind of tease out a little bit of, of what uh, what the indication were in, in those individuals. But
0: they were slinging some toward too. too.
2: Um, so moving on to Table 2, which is really what we usually think of as a Table 1, which summarizes the uh, demographics of this population. So I think in a couple sentences, what we have here is a relatively healthy, young population um, that's mainly white, around 70% and 20% African-Americans. Um, So notably, they did report here uh, prior acute kidney injury, prior chronic kidney disease, and both of those are almost 100% no for both categories. Uh, The mean age was around 27 to 28 years old, Um, and the other notable characteristics were that the BMI was... Uh, really mainly patients were in the overweight category. Um, But I think an important limitation here for the BMI is that this population is likely to have higher muscle mass, and so the BMI may not be how we traditionally think of it. The interesting also commented on the history of rhabdomyolysis and really found that almost 100% of the patients had not experienced this in the past. Uh, one other point from table two is that there was slightly more hypertension in the NSAID users versus those who did not. So 3.6% in the non-users and around 7 to 8% in the NSAID users. In fact, if you see
1: almost- in, in fact, if you see almost all the factors, almost all the covariates are different among NSAID users and NSAID non-users. So, you know, they are more likely to be older, for example, um, more african more more not a
4: statistician swap, I'm looking at the numbers, percentages, and although the p-value looks really impressive, 0.001, the numbers
1: don't. Can you explain what's going on there? Because the numbers are so huge that all the p-values are going to be significant. Yeah, and the thing is they're often they are doing chi-squares, uh, right? So, for example, in the race, uh, they have got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, they have got 15 cells. And it's a, it's a chi-square uh, with those huge numbers. So uh, the p-values are, I, I can, even without looking at the numbers, I can say the p-values are likely to be significant. Uh, but it does mean there is a difference, right? The, the, there are more African-Americans um, and less whites in the hands users. So they
2: the did P-. have an interesting table in their supplement, which is kind of specific to their population, where they uh, broke down the par- participants by military pay grade as well as military service time. And so they they found that there really wasn't um, too much variation, though the, again, the chi-square p-value is significant because of the large numbers, um, but between NSAID users and not, there does not seem to be too much variation.
3: So one question I have, um, just because I don't do clinical research, is based on this type of data set, is it actually possible to adjust for all these covariates simultaneously? Is that a legitimate... Uh, method to employ.
1: So you definitely can adjust for all these covariates at the same time. Uh, But I think the bigger question is, will you be able to? um, Everything is different. These are two different populations. Um, And perhaps you should ask, what is missing in this table too? Do you have all the information? You know, why were the people taking the NSAIDs? What was the indication for taking the NSAIDs? Like Matt pointed about indomethacin and gout. Uh, we don't have gfr uh, we just have a history of ckd so i don't know what the baseline starting gfr was for any of these patients what are the other comorbid um, conditions what were the other medications yes it's you know a healthier cohort very little very few people with diabetes or uh, hypertension but maybe they were taking other medications maybe they were taking ppis with their NSAIDs we don't have any of that no in the smoking
0: history
2: mm-hmm. yeah i think it's a pretty sparse table 1 compared to some of the table 1s in other uh, similar clinical research studies.
1: Exactly, and that's probably just a limitation of the database. Uh, that so they moving
2: had. on to what they found in Table 3, looking at the analysis of associations between NSAID use and kidney disease, um, after adjustment for all the co- covariates that we just mentioned, using their COX proportional hazards, they found... Again, not surprisingly, that the highest NSAID category, which was defined as more than seven defined daily doses per month, was associated with a higher risk of both acute kidney injury and C K D that were defined based on the I C D nine codes that we discussed a little bit earlier.
4: Can we I was gonna ask about this and this is something I always wonder is when did they develop the zero, one to seven and seven? Is like a do you have to pre specify that or do they show? Is, is six or greater going to be not positive, and only seven is?
1: That's an excellent question, you know. And why even, you know, Frank Harrell would say, yeah, yeah, it's it's uh it's not tertiles, it's not quartiles. It's you know you could say maybe because it's one week of and say it's in a month. Uh, but I'm trying to be generous. Maybe in someone's lucky number
2: is seven.
0: Yeah, I mean it's not it's not. Uh, quartiles, but it did, you know, you have two thirds of your total cohort taking no NSAIDs. And then roughly the remaining third is cut in half, like 18% and 16% as one to seven and greater than seven. That's actually probably not a bad way to do it. You take the the, the fraction that's taken the drug and you divide that into a low dose and a high dose based on...
1: Right. But you have huge numbers uh, and you're throwing away data by grouping them like that. Uh, So if there was a signal... With with highest with the highest dose, uh, you are not picking that up. You are, you know, as Frank Harrell keeps pointing out, this is kind of dichotomania. You are grouping people unnecessarily. You could have modeled this differently. And they had the numbers to model them. It's not that you know they had ten, a hundred patients, so you know fifty and fifty. They had two hundred and sixty thousand NSAID users, so they could definitely have had more groups.
0: Okay, so what we have is uh, this risk for AKI. Was not significant for the one point one to seven days, is that right? And just significant for the seven days. And the same goes for CKD. Do I have that story correct?
2: Yep, that's okay. correct. And then
0: we're, okay, and then we're and we're talking about uh, this adjusted hazard ratio of one point two. So it is a effect that's barely significant and about a twenty percent increase individual risk of AKI and CKD. Correct. Okay. And the risk of developing AKI if they had a history of hypertension, that adjusted hazard at risk was 3.2 and 4.5 for chronic kidney disease. I think this hypertension might be something to look into. That may be a real risk factor for kidney disease.
1: <laughs> I and, think um, you're you're looking at, looking you you right. influenced the blue ribbon panel. I, 2016. I'm working on
0: it. I'm working on it. It looks like diabetes is also a major risk factor. The history of rhabdo was really important. Look at, look at male sex. Male sex 2.3. Any of, the, any of the races significantly lower An risk.
1: African-American, uh, African-American had a higher
0: high risk. risk. The Hispanics mm-hmm. had lower risk for AKI. And the older you got, the higher the risk for both of these diseases. Best to be young. Try to stay under age 22. Matt, you want to lead the discussion here?
4: Okay. Uh, so as we've already summarized, this is a fairly healthy group of individuals that are active that were taking NSAIDs. And the highest group was gra- defined as greater than seven... Day, um, Defined daily doses had the increased risk of AKI and CKD by about 20%. Um, However, there were a lot of issues with the study. For instance, we did not know a whole lot about the individuals other than some rudimentary um, information about age and uh, whether or not they had been coded to have AKI or not, BMI, um, and race. And sex. Uh, other than that, we didn't really understand like why they were getting it or other comorbid diseases besides hypertension and um, diabetes. So, bottom line is, in this population, it was a very low risk, but it was there. And we also saw it a little higher in hypertension. But if you extrapolate this to a group of individuals that might be at higher risk, I would—I think I might be a little bit. Uh, hesitant to say it's safe for all. But maybe in this healthy group, it uh, has very low risk, but it's
0: there. Yeah. So in the introduction, we talked about that the uh, the modern data on NSAIDs, it was difficult to find a signal. I read this article and I feel like, you know what, the dogma is probably true. These drugs do seem to have a signal of cause. And I'm not really concerned about AKI. I've seen that with my own eyes, but in terms of CKD, uh, this data, as suspected as it is for different reasons, does seem to show what our guidelines say is that taking NSAIDs at high doses for a prolonged period of time does seem to increase the risk, especially in a group of people that we would think would be very low risk. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I think uh, moderation is the key here. I think with a lot of other medications, maybe even similar to PPIs, I think when they're taken for short periods of time and then appropriately discontinued, you can really mitigate the risk of acute or chronic kidney disease.
1: But, but Can I argue that I'm not sure there is truly an effect? I mean, we've seen so many issues with this study, right? So um, there is residual confounding, is something people throw about, but just think about it. The patients who took NSAIDs were dramatically different than the patients who did not take NSAIDs. You know, table two, everything is significant. Uh, they are two different populations, and there are so many different ways of doing this study that the authors could have done, with these kind of numbers, you could easily do propensity score matching. I suspect that if, you know, again, I'm speculating here, but I suspect if they would have done propensity score matching, they may not have had uh, this large cohort. It would have shrunk uh, significantly because it may not have been possible to match uh, them closely. And and you can do propensity score matching. So that's kind of behind. Uh, And then at the front end, that's at the back end. At the front end, you can still do an adjusted uh, uh, analysis. So you could have done both. Uh, in a study like this. And they did not choose to do that, um, A. Uh, So there definitely is residual confounding. The patients who got NSAIDs and got more AKI and CKD may have been a sicker cohort with other risk factors. Secondly, as Matt pointed out, you know, why the one to seven and more than seven? It's kind of uh, arbitrary. When was the decision to do that taken? Why was it not taken before? Uh, You know, why didn't they do some sensitivity analysis looking at different dosages? Uh, They're lumping a lot of dosages there together. Um, and thirdly, there could have been other things going on. Um, someone in the UK chat, Colin, uh, suggested maybe the PPIs that they were taking with such heavy doses of NSAIDs, belated uh, roles, yeah, for example. Yeah, let's call
0: that out. That was Colin Geddes who had that point.
3: Right. And when I attend at the VA, I've seen multiple cases of AIN and people were on coming in on NSAIDs, but they also got doses of vancomycin and peptazo at the door <laughs> when they presented, and they were also on PPI, so it's really hard to tease that apart for sure.
2: I think another issue is the external validity or how generalizable this is to the patients that we're seeing on a regular basis. I'm not sure how many of us are seeing patients that are have a mean age of 27 years old without hypertension or diabetes.
0: Those people are sometimes driving my patients to the clinic. <laughs>
4: think <laughs> that's why i think in medicine it's very challenging because once the storyline is out blah 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 is bad or this is good and then you then it's just used and you know that that sort of storyline is used across all types of patients and Issues that might occur, and that's why it's, it's you have to look at this population and say, "What what kind of person is this, and you know, what's the risk associated with it?" These are not seventy year old individuals that have a creatinine of three and diabetes for the last twenty years. Um, so, just want to make sure for the listeners that.
0: That's cute that you think we're going to have listeners.
4: We're not. We're not talking about giving daily insights <laughs> to that population that are also on ACM. <laughs> Hypothetically medication. speaking, somebody might listen to this.
1: You know, so what What should be the take home? Should A, for healthy patients, and B, for are there any lessons for our CKD population? I think for the
4: CKD population, this particular study, it's just you can't extrapolate this data set to a CKD population, but to say that, well, in a, very, very healthy population. There's a significant increase, uh, but it's small and could be more in a CKD population, but we just don't know based on this study.
0: Right. And I kind of, that's kind of what I, what the way I look at it is I look at the physician's health sur- uh, survey and the nurse's health survey beforehand. And I think this is much higher quality data because instead of asking somebody, how many pills did you have in the last year? They actually measured and counted prescriptions in a population that's probably not using a lot of over the counter drugs. And in, even though this population is a lot healthier than the patients that we treat, they still saw a signal maybe not great study design, et cetera, but there was still a signal towards harm. And in my mind, it's only going to be worse in my population. And so to me, when I last reviewed this NSAID connection with CKD, I was I walked away really disappointed in the data and actually couldn't believe that our guidelines came out so strongly against NSAIDs. And reading this article
1: made me think, well, there does look like there is a signal there. But I think the question is, not whether NSAIDs are bad, but if your patient has pain, back to
4: badness pain region again. This is a challenge, and I think that's the when you're looking at a person who's really struggling with pain and they want something for the pain. That's where we have to make a a, a call with the patient, send form, consent, talk about these risks, and really talk about the moderation in part and say that you know a week of NSAIDs for your pain. Now uh, it could be okay. Now seven, or you know, eight hundred milligrams three times a day for the next half of a year—that's not okay. But look in, in in the South in particular, we have a situation where it's not just um, prescription medications, but we have uh, BC powders, goody powders, and we're sort of in a hotbed here in North Carolina, uh, where they might take um, multiple um, different insets. Uh, that could be harmful, and so that's why I think as a nephrologist, it's really, really hard to um, to give NSAIDs or even say the word.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to. I just I wanted to read Swapnil's last line from the summary. I think it kind of sums up some of the main points. He said, "Whether heavy NSAID consumption causes AKI and CKD or not, if one needs to consume 100 grams or more of ibuprofen every six months." it would be prudent to get those nephrons checked out.
0: What, what, what do we think is the, uh, do we, if, if we wanted to answer this question, do we have a study design in mind? Anybody have a dream RCT for NSAID toxicity and CKD? Yeah,
1: but the question is more about the outcomes. Um, you know. So patient reported outcomes were the winner of neph Madness I mean, last I think year. A
4: good idea would be a real-world scenario where you're using these the way you would want to. So it would be short bursts of NSAIDs for musculoskeletal pain or osteoarthritis um, in a group of individuals that would be a high risk compared to something else. So, and it would also measure uh, you know symptomatology, um, how the patients are feeling, a pain relief, but also looking at blood pressure, safety signal, and so that we can really you know find you know something with evidence based uh, approach to treating pain. NCKD.
1: Right. And, and, and exactly. The, if the outcome shows that the pain is significantly better and patients feel happier and pain-free, but that creatinine is a little bit higher, um, uh, who cares? Well, <laughs>
4: I guess it depends on... A, there are other safety signals besides just creatinine that you'd, you'd want to look at, and, that, and hypertension would be one. Uh, and then you want to look at um, bleeding. You'd want to look at... Um, Got coronary disease. So I think there there are multiple safety factors that should be put into the trial if we were to do that. But uh, I mean, it is frustrating, and that's why we highlighted it in F madness, the pain region. Um, all of the medications have uh, side effects and and negative consequences, and it makes it very challenging to treat pain in CKD.
1: And to- totally, and the GI, especially you know, our patients, whether they're CKD or on dialysis, they are at far higher risk of having G. You know, it's interesting.
4: Uh, if you read the pain region about NSAIDs, there's a there's a spot that talks about aneuric patients on dialysis. Is it okay? And uh, if you look read there, read really closely, there's one article that showed that patients that were receiving NSAIDs that were on dialysis actually um had higher um, incidence of stroke. Oh,
3: was it embolic or hemorrhagic?
4: Um, it's a it was a retrospective analysis of patients in Taiwan and have to look to see exactly the data about what type of stroke it was but obviously it's not a prospective randomized controlled trial um, but i guess that just shows you that you know there are side effects to these medications even though you might think you know NSAIDs and prostaglandins you know they affect uh, more than just the kidney they can cause hypertension through other mechanisms besides just um, sodium retention
2: i just pulled up that uh, paper from taiwan they actually looked at both hemorrhagic and ischemic stroke. And so for either type, the increased risk was uh, one31 or 31%. And for ischemic stroke alone, uh, increased risk was 34% in the NSAID group.
0: Do they report blood pressures in those, those people?
2: I'm just in the abstract, Joel. Come on.
0: Gotcha.
2: <laughs> I'm actually in a verbal abstract for once.
4: <laughs> That's called a pod uh, a podstract. <laughs> The <laughs> the <bot> track. Track.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, I think we've beat this one to death. Um, yeah, let's do, let's do. Uh, and so the idea here is we're going to go around the table and talk about what uh, anything else that's been interesting in uh, nephrology or social media in the last week.
2: Uh, I can start. Um, so this week we announced our Nef Madness picks from the Renal Fellow Network team and just wanted to put in a plug for our champion, Uh We strongly feel that the hepatorenal syndrome region is really the strongest one in the entire competition. And we really think that any of those teams could have actually won. But we chose terlopressin because we're hoping to get it here in the U.S. And we're hoping that if we crown it as a Neff Madness champion, it'll be FDA approved soon.
4: I heard of that pathway called the Nef Madness Pathway. <laughs> it's, it's very very fast and ineffective. <laughs> um, I, I'll, I can do mine. Um, so this is uh, this is a plug, but I think it's a plug that's a good plug. It's for KidneyCon, and you know the whole the NephJC uh, Drive Time team will be there. Just about. We're still trying to get Jenny to come. <laughs> oh, okay. Please come.
3: Yeah, I'm going to be, unfortunately, going to be packing up my lab. <laughs>
4: uh, so it's April uh, 12th to 13th in Little Rock, Arkansas. And it's for internal medicine residents, pediatric residents, adult and pediatric fellows, and attending nephrologists. Um, the travel grants have already been announced. But every year we do have travel awards. And it's really based on hands on learning. There's. Um, Several hands-on workshops featuring a kidney biopsy academy, a kidney pathology workshop, the kidney, uh, the dialysis access workshop, and we have a professional development workshop from women in nephrology. A kidney boy will be doing the acid-based fluid electrolytes with Roger Rodby and a physician-scientist workshop that I'll be a part of. Michelle Rowe will be the keynote speaker and talk about her pathway in a career in academic medicine and lessons learned. And then we have a whole series of symposia with hypertension. Obviously, we got to talk about hypertension. Um, AKI, um, pediatric and adult nephrology and clinical research. Uh, It's also the official conference of the Nephrology Social Media Collective, And we'll have a lot of fun. And we really want to get people to come out and enjoy learning and having fun at the same time.
2: And there will be a very competitive Jeopardy competition.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll endorse it. It's a a good conference. Um, uh, As much fun in the conference as it is around the conference, they do an excellent job with this thing.
4: It's www.kidneycon.org or at kidneycon.
3: All right, well, I guess I'll go next. Um, Last week was World Kidney Day, and um, a little bit of a grassroots effort from Northwestern was to um, promote the hashtag socket to kidney disease, which was actually inspired by um, David Rush. I don't know how many of you are familiar with him, but he's a hip hop artist who uh, developed FSGS. And one of the first signs that he knew that he had something that needed to be checked out was that he could not fit his feet into his favorite fancy socks. And so that's where um, the idea of wearing crazy socks to honor him on World Kidney Day came from. And um, I'm pleased to say that I did not lose any Twitter followers (laughs) after retweeting a whole bunch of nephrologist feet.
4: It was a great campaign. I was really thought it was just encapsulated a a nice fear. I think that's one thing that social media does is take the serious nature of life, but you know, makes you realize like, you know, these are all people, um, that are, you know, some that are dealing with
0: real, real, real stuff. And we saw a lot of socks, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's funny when you try to do these social media campaigns, like having a way for people to participate is so important. Like World Kitty today, a few years ago, had everybody drink water and do that on social media, which was, I thought, kind of stupid, but really effective. And it was something to do to participate. And I think this, the, the socks was great also. I thought that was, I thought that was brilliant.
4: Yeah. That was great. It was uh, really effective
0: Okay, I, I, all, all I want to all, all I want to say is I'm a i am I have wanted to do a podcast for a long time, and I am super psyched for this. I really think this is a good formula, and I'm I'm excited to get NFJC uh, Drive Time going. And I and uh, so we've been talking about this for a while. We've been talking about it for a long time, and I'm I'm am excited that we're executing. We have to give a shout out to the Curbsiders too. I think to put us in the same sentence as the per- Curbsiders is quite Just elevating so. us. as the like first <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Ever. And who else should you uh, shout out to to help help get this going? Uh, Med Med Rance and uh, the guys at uh, uh, Core IM. Yeah, it's a good group, it's a real good group, and they and they've all been super helpful and reaching out to us and really uh, willing to help out in every way. So that's the first episode of Nefjc Drive Time. Uh, Swapnil had a very interesting social media anecdote, but uh for some reason it wasn't recorded and it is lost to history. So we're going to be trying to do this after every NefJC discussion to bring you uh, the articles that are driving uh, nephrology forward. Uh, Thanks for joining us today and uh, we'll see you next time or we'll hear you next time or you'll hear us next time if hypothetically we have any listeners. Thank you.